This year, Apple became the first company to be valued at $1 trillion. But in the week since the iPhone maker said it was going to stop reporting a key sales metric, investors have become a bit apprehensive. The share price has dropped below $200, which has brought that valuation below the $1 trillion mark, at least for now. And on Monday, shares dropped another 5% after some smartphone suppliers lowered their own outlook for future quarters. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Today we're looking at Apple, the company widely credited with leading the smartphone revolution. We'll find out what's really troubling investors. When the iPhone first came out, there was obviously a lot of amazement at this product that they developed. Tim Bradshaw covers Apple for the FT. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. A lot of people in Silicon Valley and the tech industry were blown away by this kind of concept of a touchscreen smartphone. Are you getting it? But there was also a lot of cynicism from Microsoft, from BlackBerry, from Nokia, the sort of incumbents of the time that, you know, Apple's a computer company, it can't just sort of waltz in here and make a phone, or um, how are you going to type on a, on a screen when we've got these lovely keyboards on our smartphones already? Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And so I think... The way that they decided to address that was just by showing people the numbers. And and from the very first weekends that the iPhone went on sale, traditionally, they always tend to go on sale on a Friday and and still do to this day. And it's treated a little bit like the sort of movie blockbuster opening weekend. And on Monday, you come back and there's a press release, usually at nine o'clock Pacific time or 10 o'clock Pacific time, that would say, we have sold a million iPhones in the opening weekend. And that was a million for the first few years. And then I think the iPhone 4 was closer to 2 million. And then the iPhone 5 was 5 million and then suddenly by the time the iPhone 6 came on it was 10 million and it was like oh my god this is just like it just keeps growing and it's this monster and it's it's going to continue forever and Apple's share price went on uh, looking like that and so you you did kind of get this sense of incredible momentum from that kind of opening burst and that's part of the payoff that Apple gets for the big ta-da of unveiling the kind of big surprise on stage like that creates this sort of pent-up demand and the excitement and the flurry of press around it and then when it actually goes up on sale you have people lining up around the block to to buy one that stopped very abruptly when they suddenly said they were no longer going to give opening weekend sales and so the immediate kind of question from Wall Street that was already going around at that time in the aftermath of the iPhone 6, which was this kind of huge, unprecedented wave of sales because of things like the screen getting bigger and Chinese consumers coming on onto the sort of Apple platform in a big way. It's over. It's never going to grow again. That's it. And it was interesting that Apple didn't really try to counter that by saying, well, actually, you know, we did sell this money or whatever. It was just sort of eerie silence. Tim, you've covered Apple for a number of years. How would you describe the way that the company likes to communicate? Apple, as is widely known, likes to control the messaging very much. And so it's always been quite one way. You sort of get what you're given from Apple and you, you know, 
there are no questions asked at an iPhone launch. There's no press conference afterwards. There's a stage show and they tell you how amazing it is and hundreds of feverish bloggers all write that down and, and away you'll go and, and that's that. They have a certain way of communicating and it's very effective. It's, you know, it's proven to do this sort of shock and awe approach to launching a new product. They tend to try and create these tentpole events and, and obviously the iPhone launch every September is the biggest of those. There has been some change, I think, in the six and a bit years that I've primarily been covering them. That's partly a result of Tim Cook taking over from Steve Jobs. And they have become a little bit more transparent in some areas and a little bit more open in some areas. But but it's still a very orchestrated, a very controlled message. Let's talk about one of the figures that Apple does typically announce, the number that gives investors and reporters a, a sense of how the company is really doing. So the main number every quarter when Apple reports its earnings, the first number that I would turn to as a reporter and the first number that most Wall Street investors look to was how many iPhones did they sell? And that number, it sort of often exceeds 70 million in the December quarter, the holiday season and the first quarter that the iPhone is on sale. And you could usually also kind of back out from the sort of last couple of weeks of the previous September quarter, how many how many phones they'd sold in that kind of last couple of weeks, i.e. the first couple of weeks that it was on sale, the first couple of weeks of the quarter. So let's talk about Apple's share price, at least in the last couple of years. What's happened in, in the last two years has really just been this, another huge acceleration off the back of a couple of things. One of them is the fact that they were able to bring huge amounts of money back from overseas, which they have given back to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends, and capitalise on what was already, I think, the biggest share buyback scheme and biggest dividend payout of any company ever. And then on the back of that, there was the iPhone X, which suddenly kind of changed the sort of growth profile of the iPhone all over again. So there was this huge surge of optimism again, which took them to this incredible milestone of this summer becoming the world's first trillion dollar company. It's official. Apple has become the first $1 trillion publicly listed U.S. company. Started in- so Apple's own fiscal year ended not that long ago and it reported fourth quarter results earlier this month. How did they look? It looked very much like any other Apple earnings release. They like to drop lots of superlatives around where they kind of say it was a record-breaking quarter, it was the highest whatever it is in history, I think the strongest revenue growth in history, and, you know, we've got our best iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch ever coming out anytime soon, and everything was the usual Apple hype, and to be fair, by and large, with the numbers behind it. The iPhone revenues were ahead of where Wall Street was expecting, it was another record profit for the company. And there was some concern a little bit about the outlook for the holiday quarter. I think Apple's guidance that it gives every quarter just for a sort of range of revenues and uh, operating margins for the coming quarter, which helps Wall Street analysts to kind of figure out what the kind of pace of growth is going to be. That wasn't quite where Wall Street had expected it was going to be. And so there were some kind of questions around that. And the share price took a little bit of a downswing on those concerns. But you you then sort of go onto the earnings call. Tim Cook starts by explaining all the wonderful things that they've just done and all the new products that they've got going on sale. We are headed into the holidays with our strongest product lineup ever, and we could not be more bullish about Apple's future. And then, as is often the case in these corporate earnings calls, the CEO hands off to the chief finance officer to kind of run through the nuts and bolts of the numbers and the, you know, the, the financial details. And now... 
Luca has more details to share with you on the September quarter. Luca Maestri, who took over as Apple's CFO a few years ago and, and has presided over, in large part, the kind of huge capital returns program that we've seen that's really fueled the share price increase recently. He started going through all the numbers. And as a reporter, this is kind of the bit of the earnings call where you tune out a little bit. It's not usually the bit that is for a kind of anyone except the financial analysts, the sort of super sexy part of the call. And then he started talking about, oh, we're going to make some changes to our, you know, how we report our numbers in the next financial year, because September is the end of their financial year. Oh, and by the way, we're no longer going to report unit sales for iPhones, iPads or Macs. As I said before, it's it's the main number that investors have turned to when a new Apple release comes out, and they were saying that they were no longer going to report it. I mean, it was just quite a few, two or three questions in the uh, in the follow up analyst Q and A were, well, what, why, why are you doing this? What, how are we going to assess the pace of growth and and the business? So yes, it was it was a. It was a stunner. So my immediate question is, why? What was Apple's reason for making this change? You know, if, if analysts are saying, hey, wait, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? Uh, how did the CFO explain it? Some of the analysts were kind of avert in saying, are you, are you stopping to report this because you're no longer going to show growth in iPhone unit sales and, and sort of called them out on that in the same way that they had done a few years ago when they stopped disclosing the, the opening weekend sales? Apple's response was that the the most appropriate way to assess Apple's performance as a business and the way that Apple assesses its own performance is to look at both uh, revenues and margins and not at unit sales. And I think over the last year, they could sort of point to a good justification for that. The iPhone X came out at $1,000 and up just over a year ago and succeeded in really increasing iPhone revenues and overall company revenues at a much faster pace, even though it wasn't actually selling more phones than it did the previous year. It was maybe going up by a few single digits, but it wasn't really growing the kind of monstrous rates that we saw with the iPhone 6 or the iPhone 5 or the iPhone 4. And so what was important there is that they were getting their existing customers who were very loyal to spend hundreds of dollars more on a phone than they would have done previously. So the average selling price was going up from 600 and something dollars to 700 and something dollars or even 800 and something dollars. And that is fantastic. If you can do that, they, Apple say that they prefer that because you can pack more technology into the device and have a better user experience, but they can also sell it for the same profit margins that they've been selling them at for the last 10 or 11 years. The problem, I think, from an analyst's point of view with that calculation is the number that they really like to look at to understand that is the average selling price. How do you get the average selling price? You divide the revenues, which they are going to continue to disclose, by the number of units, which they're not. So you can't actually work that out anymore. So although we will be able to see what iPhone revenue growth looks like overall, they're still going to break it out by category and you'll be able to see is the iPhone growing, is the iPad growing and all those kinds of things. You don't get the kind of detail that really tells the story that has driven the stock for the last year. Like I think that ASP, as they, you know, everyone loves an acronym, the average selling price is the thing that has given investors confidence to push Apple up to become a trillion dollar company. And if you can't get that, they're going to become a little bit more nervous. And that's perhaps why we've seen the share price come off a little bit in the last few days since they made that announcement. Now, I can't take credit for this next question. It was actually posed uh, in an FT letter to the editor. But one reader wrote in and said, you know, what if this is just a case of Apple 
knowing when it has to hold on to its secrets, that this should be read as a sign that actually they have a plan. Do you think there's any truth to that idea? Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the it's the trust us. We've got this approach to being a public company. And I I suppose investors who buy into Apple have to, uh, you're right on the product development side. So we, we know that there are working on augmented reality glasses, we know that they're working on self driving cars, we know that they're working on new video services that will try and expand that services ecosystem. Um, They don't talk about any of those things, they occasionally drop sort of hints and breadcrumbs. But mostly we have to find that out from sources and leaks and sort of filings and job hires and, and those kinds of things. And so there's never been perfect information around Apple by any means. And to some extent, you have to trust in the genius of Tim Cook or Johnny Ive or whoever it is to come up with the next hit product. I think the flip side to that argument is that Apple's always been valued, I think, at a discount because so many people on Wall Street think, well, it's fantastic that they're the most profitable company that has ever existed today. But look what happened to BlackBerry. Look what happened to Nokia. When you only have one hit product, it could just go away overnight. And that's why Apple has tried to push this services narrative and tried to kind of say, look, it's about building out this kind of portfolio of products and selling more products to each of our customers. But I mean, Apple's sort of valuation metrics that are usually used to sort of compare different companies has historically been a lot lower, I mean, way lower than the likes of Amazon or Facebook or Alphabet, those kind of internet companies. And that's partly because they're less profitable, particularly in Amazon's case. But it's also because investors confidence in those future earnings is just a bit lower. People have seen consumer electronics come and go before. And yes, Apple has been around for 30 plus years and has survived all that time. But it did also come quite close to not surviving in the late 90s. And so I think investors' memories there and that trust question is still somewhat unproven. So maybe that's why Apple has always been more transparent than some of its rivals in how well it's doing, because A, it's had something to boast about, and B, it needed to reassure people that, you know, it was still it was still going. I think another point that's interesting in Apple's defense is that although some of the smaller consumer electronics companies like Fitbit and GoPro do give unit sales figures every quarter, Samsung doesn't say exactly how many Galaxy phones it sells. Google doesn't tell us how many Pixel phones it's selling. Quite a lot of the Chinese rivals are not public companies anyway, so we don't really know how they're doing. And there was an argument among Apple's defenders in the analyst community that actually it was handing an advantage to its competitors by saying how much it was doing. And so to our letter writer's point, it's actually preserving some of the mystique, not for consumers or investors, but for its rivals who can figure out how well they're doing in the market off the back of Apple's numbers. So even if Apple is working on a number of big new things, for the time being, the suite of products that we do know, like the MacBook, the iPhone, Apple Watch, these are going to have to be the big sellers. But my question is about the growth. You know, much of Apple's growth in these segments, at least recently, has come from increasing prices instead of dramatically increasing unit sales, how much longer can they rely on a customer willing to shell out for these prices? I mean, right now, the sticker price on an iPhone is more than $1,000. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's the question for Apple's investors for the next five years, I, I think. Even if we do get you know, an Apple car or Apple glasses coming out in 2020 or 2021, as, as, as some think there might be, it's it's not going to be an iPhone-sized business straight out of the block. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely got to be, they've got to squeeze growth from their existing products for some time yet. Apple has these incredibly loyal customers. 
some of the wealthiest customers in the world. And they've always sort of pitched themselves as this sort of quote unquote affordable luxury. It's not it's not maybe the um the Ferrari, but it might be the Lexus of the the smartphone industry or the technology industry. But I think the question about transparency and the current quarter is they sort of blame some of that on circumstance. So they they talked about concerns about a slowdown in in different emerging markets like Turkey and India, which uh, you know, Brazil, Russia, which are very very big markets where smartphone penetration is still growing very quickly. And so if they don't want to get left behind by the Huawei's or Xiaomi's or uh, Samsung's in those markets who are selling cheaper Android devices they really need to get you know a foothold in those markets even though by and large consumers there do not have as much disposable income as they do in Europe or North America i do think the the biggest problem that faces apple as well as most of the i mean frankly the tech industry is this saturation question how many more people are there that are going to buy for the first time a new iphone or the, a, a new smartphone and then spend the amount of money after that on apps or headphones or iPads or glasses uh, or whatever comes next if you're we've sort of seen this kind of leapfrogging in, in emerging markets where they didn't buy PCs they bought phones and increasingly smartphones but without something to kind of follow up from the smartphone it then just becomes a kind of basically an argument about how quickly Apple's existing customers buy a new iPhone which you know, is it going to be two years? Is it going to be three years? If you've spent a thousand dollars on it, is it going to be four years? So yeah, they've sort of got the they got the win, they got the trillion dollar win from jacking up prices in the last year, but it could actually be storing up more trouble for the long term future. So Tim, I think that brings us to my final question, which is which is one about where do we go from here? One of the themes of this particular earnings season in parts of tech, certainly in retail, was a kind of caution about what the holiday season was going to look like for earnings. The holiday season is, of course, usually the most important quarter for the consumer industry. So many investors in particular wonder if this rather dim outlook from companies is is sort of the sense that we've reached a cyclical peak in terms of earnings growth. What can we read into this outlook? And I guess what can we expect from Apple next? I think the the reason we're seeing a little bit more there's lots of individual reasons why we're seeing a little bit more caution from different tech companies on the sort of the last portion of 2018. I think there is general nervousness about what the impacts of Chinese consumer spending slowing down might be or the impacts of tariffs from the US trade war with China. I think there's also that sort of nervousness around you know how how quickly if there is a slowdown in certain parts of the world is there is there something else that can offset that somewhere else one of the big benefits that apple saw was that even as the us smartphone market was sort of saturating and getting harder to squeeze growth out of it did see the chinese consumers coming in in a big way um and sort of adopting iPhones uh, perhaps more as a luxury item than it was seen here but um that doesn't seem like that cushion is going to be there for them. And then I think, yeah, there is this sort of general question that 10, 11 years after the smartphone revolution began, it feels like certainly in Silicon Valley, everyone's kind of ready for the next big thing, but nobody quite seems to know what it is or where it's going to come from. I mean, there's huge excitement about autonomous driving and AI, but the sort of actual impact of those in the real world is still quite early. It's not, you know, none of them are really generating, you know, revenues for anybody in serious terms at this point, certainly in the self-driving car world. And, you know, if there is another big consumer electronics product that comes along after the iPhone, a lot of people seem to think that it is 
augmented reality glasses that kind of show images in in front of your eyes, a little bit like a sort of superpowered version of Google Glass or Snapchat spectacles. But the early products that we've seen uh, in that category, um, things like Magic Leap, have been very big and clunky and maybe not quite as exciting as they were hyped up to be. And although Facebook, uh, Google, uh, um, Amazon, Apple are all working on that kind of category, we've still not quite kind of seen it. So yeah, we're in this little sort of air pocket. And I think it's understandable that there's nervousness, not just for what happens in the next quarter, but what happens in the next couple of years that's going to sustain the kind of crazy, crazy growth that we've seen out here for, you know, certainly the last six years that I've been out here. And and, I mean, the last 10, really. Yeah, and and so the anticipation builds. Thanks for your time, Tim. You can read more from Tim at FT.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, if you're not already an FT subscriber and you'd like to become one, visit FT.com forward slash offer. latest episode of the next five podcast is all about ai and the business travel sector i speak to tim labelle head of product for sap concur spend solutions we'll have so much data that our travel will be safer shelly fletcher bryant vp of advito ai can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices and author and public speaker theo lau ai can help us predict when it will be a peak travel more delays cancelled flights listen to the full episode of the next five wherever you get your podcasts enjoy